from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The reality is, is that this space is hardly used, and the amount of space you've devoted to moving vehicles is completely disproportionate to the demand, and also completely disproportionate to the return that you're getting. Lowering the speed limit might have a short-term effect, but what happens is they go right back up, because the streets are designed for high speeds. People drive the speed that they feel comfortable. And so you're coming in and you're making roads bigger and bigger and bigger. And this leads to something, this is a word I understand you're kind of famous for inventing. This is the word strode. (laughs) I'm Sarah Fenske. Charles L. Marone Jr., who goes by Chuck, is best known as the founder and president of Strong Towns. The organization works to build more resilient, livable communities. It encourages taking small steps to strengthen neighborhoods instead of shiny and expensive big projects. But before Chuck Marone founded Strong Towns, he was a professional engineer. He got into that profession with good intentions, but realized to his horror he was actually making things worse. He tells that story in his new book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, and he joins us today to tell us all about it. So, Chuck Marone, welcome. Hey, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here. So people don't think of engineers as bad guys. This isn't even a profession like journalism, where maybe half the country hates you. What makes (laughs) being an engineer something you have to confess and repent from? I don't think engineers are bad guys. In fact, I found engineers to be some of the most like thoughtful, delightful people that I've ever been around. But we, we've inherited a way of building things, a, a way of operations that we like to think goes back to Roman days. But but actually, the stuff that is most operable goes back to this experiment right after World War II, where we reshaped an entire continent in a very short period of time really to to solve the problem of how do we keep the economy from going back into depression. Hmm. And, you know, that that made a lot of sense at the time. But the things that we put in place, the, the you know, the building of interstates across the entire continent, the, the reshaping of cities around this new mode of transportation, the, the idea that every neighborhood should be car-oriented first, it, it, it was a radical shift. And it's one that... Uh, we, you know, haven't come to grips with yet and and still kind of uh, continue to uh, go along in an unquestioning kind of way, despite some of the obvious uh, impacts that it has had. When you described doing this work, you know, you went into this, you wanted to do a good job, you wanted to help people, and you kind of thought you would be, but then it turns out you were almost a slave to these engineering codes. And as you say in these books, this these codes come with values, values that you hadn't even really thought about going in. What, what are these values that are being pushed by these supposedly neutral documents? Yeah, it's a really hard thing for me going in to, to grasp because you're taught a certain approach. Like, here is the approach. And like I said, it's almost like it descends from like the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they, you've been with us so long. It's like, well, this is the way things have always been done. But the reality is that the design process for roads and for streets is very new because this profession is very new. We've only been building highways for 70 years, hmm. uh, two, two generations, a little more than two generations. 
Um, the process for doing that uh, is, you know, deeply embedded. We, we start with, from a very, you know, practical standpoint, we start with the design speed, the speed we expect people to drive. Uh, we then look at the volume of traffic. How many cars are we expected to handle? When you start with those two things, you then ask, okay, what is the code book? You know, this kind of Bible-ish document you're handed that describes what you're supposed to do in every circumstance. What, what does this code book say you're supposed to do? to make it safe, and then how much will that cost? If, if you actually get down to the neighborhood level, you get down to streets where people live, and, and you start to talk to people, and you start to ask what their values are and what they would prioritize, humans, and I include engineers in this actually, when we're talking not in abstract design terms, but in their actual places where they live, humans actually start with safety. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you know, how do we make this neighborhood, how do we make this street safe? And only after they've done safety do they then look at things like how much will it cost and how do we make things cost effective and how do we handle the cars we're expected to handle and then how fast can they go. And speed is always the lowest prioritized value in a, in a human-based system in a, in a neighborhood context, even though from a design context, it's the very first thing we start with. It's like the underlying number one assumption is how fast our car is going to be driving here. And so you come in as an engineer trying to just get the streets moving. And so you're coming in and you're making roads bigger and bigger and bigger. And this leads to something. This is a word I understand you're kind of famous for inventing. This is the word strode. Yeah. <laughs> this is quite yeah. a claim to fame here, Chuck. Um, tell us about what a strode is and why a strode is such a bad thing. Yeah. If you, I was trying to describe this condition where you're not in a place, but you're not, you're trying to get through a place, but you're not really able to do that either. So a a road and a street, two different functions. A a road is really trying, uh, the way you get from one place to another, it's a fast movement. You can think of it as a replacement of a railroad, you know, which is a road on rails. A street is a platform for building wealth. It's actually the place you make a place out of. You, You have a framework of streets and then you build along them. A strode is this condition or it's this uh, thing we build where you're not in a place, but you're not actually getting anywhere very quickly. And and the interesting thing about strodes or the tragic thing about strodes is that they are the most expensive thing that we build. They're, they're, they're very, very expensive. You can think of that like four-lane or six-lane divided roadway with lined with frontage roads and and all the kind of accoutrements of, of suburban development, the, the gas stations and the franchise restaurants and the big box stores, there's not really a place. Like no one looks at that as saying that's a place. And financially, when we look at it, it actually is not creating very much wealth either. Even though there might be very expensive buildings, they're way spread out. They've got tons of public infrastructure investment to them. The public's return on that investment is really, really low, most often negative, uh, especially over the long term. But if you look at those places, you're actually not getting anywhere quickly either. You might for short periods of time be able to drive 50 miles an hour, 55, but for the most part, you're driving around 35 or 45, you've got to stop at traffic signals, your travel time is really high to go very short distances, it creates a lot of congestion. So we make these massive investments in moving people, but no one moves quickly. We make these investments in building a place, but it's not really a place and it doesn't create a lot of value. You layer onto that that these are really dangerous environments. I mean, most of our fatalities, 
most of our uh, serious traumatic injuries happen in that 45 to 55 mile an hour range where you've got traffic moving at lethal speeds with lots of complexity in the environment. And strobes are just like nasty places to be. And so an engineer would say, well, they've done their job there. They've built this road to be fast. They've added all these lanes. What would you say, now that you've sort of seen the light, what should happen to a strode? Well, a strode needs to become more productive by either becoming a great road or a, a really wonderful place, a street. And it's this, it's this middle area where we're spending so much money and getting so little in return and, and creating the, the dangerous situations. So if we want to go to a road, we have to limit access. We have to move traffic more quickly. We have to make it about getting between places. Um, and so the, the kind of short-term mining of this public investment to get that gas station or get that big box store or that strip mall is, is really contrary to the idea of moving vehicles quickly. We need to resist that. We need to go back and close these accesses and move things along. If we're going to build a place, we actually have to slow traffic. And so if we want to make the strode into a street, we need to slow traffic. We need to thicken up those neighborhoods. We need a lot more private investment along that street. And we need to prioritize humans in that place. So people on foot, people on bikes, people in wheelchairs. We, we, we need to make it a, a place where humans can be outside of a vehicle, very comfortable and very safe. So is the problem in America that we're trying to have it both ways? We kind of yes. want too many of our roads to be all things for all people. You just can't have that. Yes. Yes. And and I I think it's it, it it's easy to say, you know, as Americans, we are very used to having our cake and eating it too, or at least thinking that we can. But but I think from a design standpoint, it's actually a little bit more seductive because the the strodes are generally paid for or built with state, federal, maybe sometimes even regional money. But the tax base is something that we experience locally. So in a sense, we can tap into these outside resources um, to create what is really like a sugar high, like quick levels of growth in the community. And that quick level of growth gives us cash flow. I mean, we get building permits, we get, uh, you know, new tax base, um, you know, what have you, at very low cost for us up front initially. So there's kind of like a financial incentive. There is a financial incentive. It's kind of seductive for us to do this. Mm -hmm. The problem is we wind up hollowing out our places. Uh, we wind up destroying our, our core downtowns, which tend to be financially like really productive with a lot of local entrepreneurs and local businesses. We tend to make our neighborhoods less inviting places to be, and so they wind up being almost like a slash and burn kind of agriculture where you build it and it, it, it's okay for a while, but then a generation later it starts to fall apart and there's no renewal mechanism. So this pattern of development gives us uh, like the financial fix. I, again, going back to how do we stay out of the Great Depression, we build real quickly, right? We, we come up with a pattern of development that can quickly replicate itself and build very, very quickly. The question we have now is not how do we stay out of depression, but how do we make use of all this stuff we built? How do we mature our places so they're places not only that are safe and productive and healthy, but they're places people care about enough to want to take care of and, and stay in and, and have survived multiple generations? That, that's the big challenge we have today. 
So you had a really interesting example, one that I did not see coming as you were talking about making Strode's work or fixing Strode's. And this has to do with a visit you had to Paris. You talk about the Champs-Élysées. And this is actually a Strode. It would never occur to me that that would be a Strode. Um, How did they make the Strode work there? And then, of course, how did that end up changing entirely? Well, the Champs-Élysées is just like this amazing, amazing, uh, you know, boulevard, grand boulevard of Paris. Mm-hmm. And when I was first there, I was I was in shock because I had never it never occurred to me that you could both move traffic quickly and efficiently and have a place. Um, but the way they did it is they 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 took those functions and put them in separate places. A strode tries to do both at once and fails. In the Champs-Élysées, you've got in the middle of the street. I mean, imagine if people who haven't been there will have to I have to describe it. They need to in go the there the, is, is what they yeah, need to go do. There, but please, yeah, absolutely that. <laughs> in the middle of the street, you have the the part of that is given over to vehicles. So there's like three lanes in each direction. They're moving very, very quickly. They're in the middle. But on the edges of that, you have this wide buffer of trees. And then you have what are called, in engineering terms, are called slip lanes. So they're little lanes off the side that are like streets. Traffic moves very, very slow. There's parking along it. Um, and it's this, it's this kind of very gentle area alongside of the sidewalk where people you know, are walking and there's retail and there's coffee shops and, and restaurants and the whole like urban life that the Champs-Élysées is known for. The interesting thing, and I, I know I put this in the book, is that I was recently back in Paris, I think in 2019 with my family, and I went over to look at this again because I was going to get some photos this time. When I was there before, I, I didn't have a good camera, so I was going to get really nice photos. The slip lanes are gone. Hmm. Um, and and it's no longer a strode. It's actually more of a road now um, because the middle still functions the way it did before. They're actually trying to tame it a little bit more and make it into a street. But the slip lanes are gone, and they're all given over to people walking now. They have these beautiful wide sidewalks. They have all this stuff going on over there. Um, artists and 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 street vendors and, and kind of what we would think of as like entrepreneurs. It's uh it's a very exciting place, but they've replaced that automobile space with human space and made what is a fantastic boulevard even better. So I'm thinking of St. Louis, and if there's anything this city has so much of, it is these giant roads with just not enough cars to justify them, not enough going on on the sides of it. Do you think this kind of thing, obviously we don't have Paris's cachet here, but is this the sort of thing that could translate on a human level to a city that has overly wide roads? Yes, and St. Louis is a tragedy in that way. Um, yeah, I was recently able to spend some time there, and, and one of the things you're struck with as a as an engineer, as an urban designer, is that you have vastly too much space given over to very little demand for vehicles. Mm-hmm. And I know people listening to this are probably saying, what do you mean? When I drive, it's congested. Yeah, for like a tiny periods of time, our system creates congestion at pinch points. But the reality is, is that this space is hardly used, and the amount of space you've devoted to moving vehicles is completely disproportionate to the demand, and also completely disproportionate to the return that you're getting. Um, it, it would be delightful. It would be wonderful. And I think that St. Louis would benefit financially in large ways, not to mention quality of life and public health and, and a whole bunch of other things. But just if we just look at sheer finances, recapturing a lot of the space you've dedicated now to moving vehicles quickly and giving that over to other uses that would that would be more beneficial. 
We're talking today to Chuck Marone. His new book is Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation and talk some more specifics that could apply here to St. Louis and our completely dangerous roads. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking today to Chuck Marone. His new book is Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. There was so much in this book that I found myself just dog-earing and making notes going, this is something St. Louis should be paying attention to. This is also relevant. And and Chuck, something I want to address right here, we talk a lot on this show about how out of control St. Louis streets are. The drivers go way too fast. Um, a lot of pedestrians are being killed. Our numbers are way out of whack in terms of how dangerous these streets are. And we hear some of the same responses every time this comes up. These are things you address in this book. And so I want to briefly touch on these here today. Some people insist that a good step would be to lower the speed limits on some of these streets where people are just going too fast all the time. You say that's not going to work. Why is that? It, it won't work. And it won't work because driving is, uh, in terms of the cognitive behavior of drivers, it's a, what Daniel Kahneman calls a system one activity. So your brain is divided into system one and system two. System one is if I ask you one plus one, you'll say two. You don't have to think about it real hard. But if I ask you to add like four digit numbers, you'll, you'll have to actually stop what you're doing and think hard about it. Mm-hmm. That is system two. Driving is designed to be a system one activity. It's something we can do subconsciously. We don't have to sit and think about it. We can listen to the radio, sing along to a song. We can talk to someone in the adjacent seat. Um, And if it wasn't, people get frustrated by that, but if it wasn't a system one activity, humans could not do it. Right. Yeah. We we don't we don't have system two activities are draining. Imagine when you took that SAT test or whatever it was, and you got done with that, and you were just exhausted. That's what being in system two for a long period of time is like. And if imagine if that your commute was like that, or your drive through the city was like that, you couldn't do it. And so what happens is that people drive subconsciously. They drive without paying attention to the surroundings, and they drive the speed that they feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So lowering the speed limit might have a short-term effect. And it, you know we've, we've seen where speed limits have been lowered, and then people drive slow for a short period of time. But what happens is they go right back up, because the streets are designed for high speeds. The street actually signals to the dr- driver that we have forgiven the mistakes that you are likely to make, and you can drive at a higher speed and are not likely to have any problems. And, and the reality is, is that is true for 99% of trips that we'll make. In, in cities, it's always that one random tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. That one random thing. I wasn't expecting that car to turn quickly. I wasn't expecting that person to be there. I wasn't anticipating this. When you mix high speed with the randomness and complexity of an urban space, you get tragedy. 
And when you have as much like volume of cars going through and, and complexity going on, it's statistically inevitable that a certain percentage of people will die. And that is what we see. Lower speed limits won't fix that. You actually have to redesign the streets to signal something different to drivers. And so this does go back to the engineers. Like you've sort of designed these streets in ways that tell our subconscious, okay, you're safe going 40 miles an hour. My brain can't help it. I'm going to go 40, maybe 45. <laughs> That's exactly right. And let's give engineers their, their due, right? Because I, I think what the problem they were trying to solve was how do we keep drivers safe? And on a highway, the way you keep drivers safe is you widen out lanes and you widen out clear zones and you you put a lot of buffer space in so that the driver, if they make a mistake, have plenty of recovery room to get back on and back on course. When you bring that design ethic, however, into an urban space, you signal the wrong things to drivers. You, you signal to them that there is no complexity here. Everything is fine and, and go ahead and drive faster than what we know is actually safe for that space. On an urban street, anything over 15 miles an hour is potentially lethal, and anything over 20 miles an hour is lethal. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we would have like a 30 mile an hour you know, design speed, and actually our design speeds tend to be even higher than that because we're, again, putting in buffer areas for the driver. What it does is it's transferring the risk of that space from the person behind the wheel to the person outside of the vehicle. And that, that's, that is where I think the priorities of the engineering profession embedded within them are the most misaligned with society. No, very few people in society think that we should be willing to sacrifice humans outside of a vehicle to save people a few seconds here or there. And, and engineers don't think that either. They're just kind of trapped in uh, you know, the, the design mentality that they've created for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the other things you hear from a lot of people in St. Louis, and for the first time in a while, our police department is now saying, okay, we have a plan, we're actually going to do this, is that we need more traffic enforcement, that more people should be stopped if they're driving in dangerous ways. You grapple with this idea in your book, and this, this chapter that you had on this um, was counterintuitive in some ways. It really pushed me to think hard about this. You're not in favor of officers doing more traffic stops. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of re I'm glad you grappled with this because I've grappled with it too, right? I'm, uh, you know, a, a guy from a small town, a conservative area, law and order. You know, if we get police out there, it'll be it. it again, it, with the streets designed the way they are, what you see is that law enforcement tends to be arbitrary, and you know because we will have law enforcement who look and essentially everybody is to one extent or another breaking the law. If, if you're in a 30 mile an hour zone and you're driving 31, 32, 35, which people frequently do, we can go out and speed monitor people and see, you know, everyone driving a stretch is driving over the speed limit. Um, that's not a law enforcement issue. And what we do when we make it a law enforcement issue is in two ways, we make a, a, a situation artificially dangerous. Traffic stops are the most dangerous thing that police officers do. Mm -hmm. Domestic calls are up there, but, but over and over again, traffic stops are the place where we see police officers getting hit by vehicles. We see them being killed. We see people pulling weapons on them. It's, it's a very high stress, dangerous situation for them. 
for people within a vehicle, and, and you know, you uh, are, are are sitting next to you know uh, the Ferguson, which was a, a national example of a traffic stop going bad, or mm-hmm. you know, a traffic interaction going bad. Uh, we have had ours here in Minnesota, so I'm not casting stones. Um, you know, for people outside of a vehicle, or for people, um, you know, in a vehicle being stopped by a police officer, these tend to be also some of the most dangerous interactions we can have. There's a better way to do this, and it doesn't get into enforcement as much as it gets into signaling to people through our designs uh, what would be a safe way. And I think there's also an understanding here. Most people want to drive safe, right? Like most people are not saying, I want to be a deviant from the law and break the law. I want to be in compliance. We have to get the laws in and the design, uh, you know, compatible with each other at a place where, you know, we want people to actually be operating. So I believe you when you say most people don't want to be deviants. I certainly want to believe that about my fellow St. Louis citizens. We have had some high-profile examples lately. In one case, there were like hundreds of drivers who organized this thing where they were just, you know, going out and, and terrorizing neighborhoods and stunt riding and drag racing, stuff like that. In cases like that, would you want to see enforcement if things are that out of control? Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And and you know, I, I, I what I'm suggesting is that most people in their day-to-day interactions do not, you know, go forth to break the law. Sure. And so a system that makes most people into lawbreakers um is very problematic. And that's what our current system does. Um and I think when you see drag racing and you see the other, you know, very dangerous and very deviant kind of behaviors on streets. What I am seeing is not a subpopulation that doesn't care. I'm seeing a system that can't enforce basic rules, creating a disregard for all rules. Mm. And so I would like to see the system designed so that most people, uh, the vast overwhelming majority of people, are actually functioning in a way that is not deviant, is not breaking the law. And that allows law enforcement to focus on the people who are, you know, truly uh, you know, antisocial in a sense, and, and mm-hmm. allow us to focus our resources where they actually are are meaningfully going to help uh, protect society and, and keep us better off. So not go after the broken taillights and the expired tags, but people who are truly doing dangerous things like maybe well, the, running lights. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's important to grasp. I mean, in this chapter about law enforcement, I, I talk about how those things are are listed in the manual as investigative stops. They're, mm-hmm. they're stops not designed to enforce actual traffic laws, but they're stops designed to make contact with people that you believe might be breaking other laws. And so traffic enforcement becomes a pretext towards having other conversations with people that you potentially, you know, think might be doing bad things. Mm-hmm. And my gosh, that's just not a healthy way to do traffic enforcement. Well, so Chuck, there's so much in this book that is so interesting. I really want to encourage anybody who's who's grappling with these issues, whether it's the issue of traffic stops, whether it's the issue of road design in St. Louis. I want to encourage people to read Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. Um, in our final couple minutes here, uh, as you mentioned, you were in St. Louis in October. You spoke at an event that was sponsored by St. Louis University Urban Planning and Development and TrailNet and some other organizations around town. And I do hear more and more people talking about these things that you have been talking about. Do you think St. Louis at this point is on the right track and asking the right questions? Or with our level of strodes around here, is it almost too late for this city? 
I think there's a fascinating conversation happening, but it's happening at the very like bottom up block level, right? Mm-hmm. The, the institutions, your MPO, uh, the regional governance, certainly the state and the state DOT are having very divergent conversations from what's going on at the local level. You see this with like the federal infrastructure bill right now. You know, the the, the president's plan uh, identified 170,000 miles of roads in poor condition. It, it proposes to fix 12% of them. These are like numbers that don't make any sense, but they drive, uh, you know, the state DOT to do certain things, the, the MPO to really not question their past investments in ways that need to happen. I think that the most exciting conversations happening in St. Louis and in cities all across America right now are at the very local level. And that's where these changes are going to happen. And that's where these changes should happen. We just need to empower those places more. And so these changes, some of which we're starting to see in St. Louis, where they're putting some of these big strodes on road diets, they're narrowing them, they're adding these kind of design features. This is the sort of like small step that people need to be taking where they can. Yeah, we, we are in a position right now where, like I said, we, we don't have the money to maintain everything that we built. I mean, that if you get one thing out of the federal infrastructure conversation, it's even at its most aggressive, largest numbers, biggest spending, which has been whittled down. It, it funds a tiny portion of what we have, main, what we have built. It, it maintains a tiny portion of it. So we are going to have to figure out how to make better use of what we built. And that's a local, nuanced, bottom-up kind of conversation. And that's what we really need to shift towards. Mm-hmm. Well, Chuck Marone, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and uh, being such an important voice within this conversation. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for reading the book and, and for your interest in this. I hope to get back to St. Louis very soon. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.